I, I wonder if you've ever heard of the concept of presuming upon God's grace. The idea, it's, it's the idea of assuming that, that God has been gracious to you and will be gracious to you regardless of what you do or how you live. Because God is gracious. That's, that's who He is. The great Puritan minister, Thomas Watson, because I can hardly go a sermon without quoting a Puritan. Uh, the great Puritan minister, Thomas Watson, he once reflected upon this subject saying, quote, Presuming upon God's mercy can be eternally fatal. Many suck poison from this sweet flower. Because of mercy, some men presume and think that they may go on sinning. But should a king's clemency make his subjects rebel? The psalmist says there is mercy with God, that he may be feared, but not that we may sin. Can men expect mercy by provoking justice? God will hardly show those mercy who sin because mercy abounds. Striking and sobering words from Dr. Watson. And over the past couple of months, we've been studying the book of Amos. And in this book, we've met Israel. A stubborn, rebellious, and wicked people. They've thought to themselves, you know, we're, we're God's chosen people. And no matter what we do, God will always be happy and pleased with us. In other words, they have presumed upon God's grace. And because they have, Amos tells them that they will soon face God's judgment in exile. With this kind of book and message in the Bible, we rightly ask ourselves, well, how can I, how can I rest in God's grace and be confident in it without presuming upon it? Well, this morning we turn to answer this question and others as we study God's Word. Let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 8. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 769. 769. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us of what Amos has said so far. Amos, a prophet of God, was commissioned to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel during the period of the divided kingdom. On the surface, it appeared as though the Lord was blessing the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. During the time in which Amos ministered, the people of the northern kingdom were in a season of considerable prosperity. Their economy was seemingly strong. Their army and their fortresses were not being tested by the neighboring nations. Life seemed to have been moving along just fine for the northern kingdom. In some ways, we can see how they could kind of presume upon God's grace even while they were sinning so uh, forcefully. Um, but Amos, he brought to them an ominous message. Life, he said effectively, would not keep moving on as it has been. Instead, Israel would be moving out of the land that the Lord had given them. In the first six chapters of Amos, we were introduced to a series of his sermons against Israel. He addressed Israel's iniquity and he announced Jehovah's judgment, which would result in Israel's exile from the land, being forced to move out of their homeland. And last week, we began studying the last major section of the book of Amos, the section in which we were introduced to a series of visions that the Lord gave Amos. 
These visions restate what Amos has already said in his sermons, that due to Israel's sin, God would judge Israel and send them into exile. And in the passage that we're studying together this morning, we're introduced to the fourth of Amos' visions. This vision, like the others before it, reveals the inescapable nature of God's judgment. Not only that, but this vision is followed by a lengthy judgment speech, wherein Israel's future is laid out in dire terms. And we're going to study Amos chapter 8 in three sections under three headings. First, the violent vision. Second, the words of the wicked. And third, the dark days ahead. And as you can tell, it's not entirely a cheery text for us. It's a sobering text for us this morning. But there is a lesson that we should and can learn from it, can and should learn from it. If you're taking notes this morning, those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, the violent vision. The violent vision. And as we do, read Amos chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Amos chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. As I mentioned a moment ago, this, this is the fourth vision that we're presented with in the latter portion of the book of Amos. It's a, it's a vision directly from God to his prophet. And given how verse 3 ends, we can tell that it is an undoubtedly violent vision. So far in Amos, we've encountered two types of visions. Uh, there are disaster-related visions and visions which are effectively enacted parables. Uh, this vision of the summer fruit basket is more closely related to the latter. It's an enacted parable. Um, the, the, the previous vision, the one just before this, was also an enacted parable. If you'll remember from our study last week from Amos chapter 7, it was uh, the vision of a plumb line. Uh, the Lord showed Amos a plumb line to reveal Israel's crookedness. It was a line which measured whether or not the wall was leaning or straight. And that vision revealed that Israel was crooked. She was a leaning wall. And in, in that vision we learned through that enacted parable that Israel was deserving of judgment. This enacted parable, the, this vision of a, a basket of summer fruit, expresses essentially the same point. The Lord shows Amos a basket of summer fruit and then he, he says to him, you know, what do you see, Amos? And Amos answers quite simply, a, a basket of summer fruit. But then think about this. How is this vision and, and revealing? How is a basket of summer fruit revealing? How is it an enacted parable? Well, you don't pluck the fruit from the tree until it is ripe. The fruit is ripe. It's ready. That is why it's in the basket. And the Lord is showing Amos that Israel was ripe for judgment. The time has come for Israel to be punished for her sins. And Amos would not only understand this message through this vision, but also through the combination of his words and the Lord's words. Remember, they're having a conversation. What do you see, Amos? 
Amos answers, a summer, a basket of summer fruit. And, and that, that word in the Hebrew language, summer fruit, has a, has a distinct tonal sound, which matches the Lord's next words, which he says, the end. So as Amos says, summer fruit, and the Lord says, the end, he hears, he makes that connection, that the end really has come for the people of Israel. The language and pattern, uh, the language of the latter portion of verse 2 is, is similar to what we heard in Amos chapter 7, verse 8. There and here the Lord promised that He would never again pass by His people. Instead of passing by Israel in mercy, He would now pass through them in judgment. And on the day that the Lord passes through Israel in judgment, the songs of the temple should become wailings. All of Israel's false and hypocritical worship would come to an end. The cries of joy for the mercy and forgiveness of the Lord would be exchanged for cries of agony and pain and death. And the horrifying reality and finality of God's judgment is seen in these, these three sentences, in these three sentences that Amos utters at the end of verse 3 as he reflects on the Lord's words. So many dead bodies. They're, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. Israel will face such a devastating judgment that none remain even to wail over the dead. In the end, the Lord has given Amos an imminent, comprehensive, and devastating vision of judgment. And perhaps one of the most striking features of these verses is the worship of the people of Israel is exchanged for wailing. It seems as though the people of Israel didn't think they had done anything wrong. They didn't think that they had abandoned God. After all, they kept His forms. They kept going to the temple. They kept singing their songs. They kept offering their prayers. They kept going through the motions, turning up to church. is incredibly important for us as Christians. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we're, we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And to do so all the more as we see the day of the Lord. That's the day of judgment. The day of the Lord approaching, the author of Hebrews says. We should keep turning up to church. But let's remember that simply turning up to church doesn't mean that we will escape God's judgment. Just as the people of Israel were ripe for judgment, so are we outside of Christ. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need to be rescued from His judgment. But simply because we turn up to the meeting house, His meeting house in this age, does not mean we'll have a room in His house in the ages to come. No, we must be careful not to presume upon God's grace. And there may even be signs in our lives which reveal that we are presuming upon God's grace. We see a few of, what, of those would-be signs in the next section of our passage. So let's turn now and consider our second point, the words of the wicked. They reveal a people who were presuming upon God's grace. The words of the wicked. As we consider this section, read Amos chapter 8, uh, verses 4 to 7. Amos says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And sell the chaff of the wheat. 
The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. The reality is that these verses are a, uh, a part of a larger speech. Amos' speech, which begins in verse 4, actually continues on through the rest of the chapter. And I've decided that we should just consider uh, these verses separately because unlike the verses that follow, uh, they bring out a handful of iniquities attributed to Israel. Several times in this book we've heard Amos address Israel's greed and injustice. And in verse 4, Amos calls Israel, those who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, calls them to hear, to listen. And before he tells them what they're to hear from the Lord, he tells them to hear their own words. In, uh, he, he, he makes them listen to themselves. Amos calls the wicked uh, kind of like a lawyer, kind of in a courtroom setting, to play the tape back, making the defendant sit there and listen to their own speech and convict themselves. Amos kind of plays the tape back for Israel to hear again. Israel has been saying... When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? See, the, the people of Israel were so anxious for the religious feast days and celebrations to be over so that they could get back to turning a prophet. Now, here's the thing. Israel's anxious desire for increased wealth didn't just occur every couple of months, but every week. Uh, Israel's anxious desire for wealth was a life-consuming desire. A look at the second question. In verse 5, which stretches into verse 6. Uh, continuing with the desire for the worship of God to be over with, we hear Israel utter these words. And when will the Sabbath be over, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Amos God's covenant prosecutor plays the tape back for the judge and the defendant to hear. And Israel is clearly more interested in the market day for the bank than in what the Puritans called the market day for the soul. Israel not only admits to wanting the Sabbath to be over with, but also admits to rigging the scales. They purposely use false balances so that the poor person would think that they're getting more and they're actually getting less. Thereby allowing the salesman to receive more money than really he deserved. In Israel, the, the rich were getting richer and the poor really were getting poorer. And who can really be surprised? When our desire is for anything other than God, we will never be satisfied. Because money, possessions, or anything else other than God was never made to satisfy us. These these wicked merchants could never have enough. Quite frankly, because they could never have enough. That, that's clear when we're told that they would resort to buying the poor. When they had taken all of the poor man's money, they would take his freedom by making him a slave. What older saints used to call man-stealing. There's not enough money and wealth in the world to satisfy anyone. Money wasn't made to satisfy us. God didn't create money so that we could use it to fill the void in our lives or take advantage of others to our gain. Brothers and sisters, we, we should be sure that we are not rigging the scales in our economic transactions. 
when we bill others for our time and labor, whatever profession we're in, or whether we be lawyers or consultants or whatever it is we do, when we bill others for the work and labor that we do, we should be sure that we are being just and fair and honest. And the same is true when we hire someone to serve us. We need to be sure that we give those who are under our employ their full due. You can be greedy in rigging the scales, and you can be stingy and rig the scales. You can do it both ways. You can withhold, and you can uh, do it the other way. If we are to err on the side of the issue, it's probably best that we as Christians endure wrong rather than wrong others. And, and children, youth, and young adults, you, you might be surprised, but this is something that you um, need to watch as well, that you have the temptation to do. Uh, you have the opportunity all the time to take advantage of others too. Uh, perhaps you and your brother or sister are, are playing uh, with toys and you want to do an exchange and you convince perhaps your, your younger sibling, your younger brother or your younger sister to take the inferior you know, toy so that you can get the superior toy. For your joy. Or, or perhaps a friend has asked to buy something from you that you own. Um, you, you could ask for a higher price than that object is really worth. Not because you, you know, really because you just want more money. Children and adults, th this is something that we all need to understand. This is something that goes beyond the scales. Why do we rig the scales? It's because of what's going on in our hearts. When we think of Amos' words here and what the merchants of Israel were thinking about in the midst of worship, it's not hard to hear Jesus' words ringing in our ears. Remember when he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve money and the maker. That's clear here in Amos, isn't it? Israel sitting in worship, thinking about making money. Israel couldn't wait for worship to end so they could go out there and make another dollar. Their desire to make money was deeper than money. They, they wanted to make money for themselves because they were living for themselves. You know, the, the men of this uh, congregation, many of the men of this congregation have been gathering together on Friday or Saturday morning to uh, have a, a men's breakfast reading through a book together by Paul Tripp called Sex and Money. It's a very good book. On Friday, and I think on Saturday, uh, that group too read chapter 12, which is entitled, Money is Not the Problem, Love Is. And as we talked about that chapter, we discussed this statement uh, from Dr. Tripp. He writes, quote, When you love money, when you love you, You'll love money because it allows you to indulge you. When you love you, you'll love money because it makes you feel better about you. When you love you, you'll love money because it alters how others look at you. When you love you, you'll love money because it can help you depend only upon you. And when you love you, you'll love money because it keeps you from having to say no to you. Love of self is clearly seen in love of money in our pursuit of it. Wasn't that this true with Israel? We could even say that when Israel loved themselves, they, they loved money and so they used it to trample on their neighbor. They, they loved themselves to the detriment and diminishment of their neighbor. 
And I wonder if you realize this about money. The problems that we and others in this world have with money are not really about money. They're really about love and worship. Uh, remember, again, Paul's words from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. There Paul wrote, um, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Uh, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Isn't that what happened with Israel? Israel was killing her love and worship of God through love and worship of self. And if we're honest with ourselves, and sadly, we'll, we'll admit that we too, we love and worship ourselves too often. And we use money to accumulate and grow the worship and love of ourselves. And, and do you know what the, the worship of ourselves is in direct competition with? It's in direct competition with the worship of God. That's what's going on here in Amos. Israel's worship is distracted. They wanted to get out of the temple so they could get into the marketplace. The people of Israel are frankly disinterested in worshiping God during these wonderful religious festivals, which God gave them as a means of grace to them, and during each weekly Sabbath, because the people of Israel are more interested in worshiping themselves. And sometimes I wonder if this can be said of some of us on the Lord's Day. Sometimes on Sunday, uh, there is very little rest taken in anticipation of the final rest that remains for the people of God. And I'm not just talking about a nap on Sunday afternoon. Uh, you know, who doesn't enjoy a good nap if you can get one? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about something more fundamental. Uh, and I'm not just talking about you know, doing actual work on Sundays. The first Christians, frankly, probably had to work on Sunday. It seems that Sunday was a part of the work week in the first century. What I'm talking about here is an attitude that we see in Israel, an attitude which shaped how Israel and perhaps sometimes we view worship. In the midst of the religious feasts and celebration that Israel was supposed to be fully engaged in, while Israel was supposed to be setting their minds on things above, they were setting their minds on things below. Uh, they were doing that because they took more delight in mammon and in the maker. And too often we underestimate just how radical and important our gatherings here on the Lord's Day are. Here on Sundays, we begin the first day of the week, which sets the agenda for the rest. Sunday is not the week's end, but the week's beginning. The first Christians described it that way in the New Testament scriptures. They called it the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Here we spend the first hours of the first day proclaiming to the world that Jesus Christ is first and primary. And that all that we do in the rest of the week, we do in service to Him. Uh, a pastor and friend of mine once reflected on this, saying, quote, Far too often we approach Sunday as the day we rest from the week gone by, rather than the day of first fruits of beginning with the Lord and shaping our hearts and souls for the week ahead. When that happens... God gets the leftovers, and the world gets the best part of us. 
What if we invested considerable energy in planning to get off to a good start with the Lord and his people and planning to give the leftovers to the lesser lords? It's a striking question. For Israel, love of self and money had become its greater Lord. And it had become apparent, even with how they were behaving in their worship on the Sabbath, their love which they gave themselves to so fully on the other six days had begun to make its way into that day. And don't you see, it wasn't a structural problem for Israel. It was a heart problem. It's not as though they needed an eighth day of the week to make sure that their love of self wouldn't creep into it. No, it was a heart problem. Love of self had begun to squeeze out love of God in the last remaining space because that's what competing objects of worship do. And I wonder that if we realize in prioritizing the worship of God on the first day, we actually invert that paradigm. We're trying to push it back, as it were. Push love of self back. God is now pouring himself out into the rest of the week. He's not just taking over one day, but all seven. He sets the agenda for our weeks on the very first day. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and unite with his church, the Lord says to us, I own every day because you belong to me. That's a gracious call from him. Our Lord calls us to love him, not just on Sundays, but every day. And it's especially on Sunday that we're reminded and refreshed and reinvigorated by his love and grace. And so we want to make sure that his love and grace are on display in Jesus Christ, that they're front and center in our worship together. Well, after having made the people of Israel listen to their own words, Amos calls them to hear God's words. The words of the Lord are direct and clear there in verse 7. He swears and promises never to forget any of the deeds of the people of Israel. He will not forget their wickedness. He will not forget their greed and iniquity. The Lord promises to remember their sins. What a, what a dreadful thought. The infinite God who never forgets anything will remember their sins. We, you know, we sometimes, we sometimes forget our sins and our wrongdoings. Time goes on, memories fade, that kind of thing happens. But it's not so with God. You know, we even sometimes suppress our memories of sin. Uh, we will justify them to kind of quiet our consciences. Because we, we don't want to remember. We don't want our guilt dredged up, so we practice thinking about other things. It's not so with God. God knows all things all the time at every point in time. Nothing is ever suppressed for him. And this is terrible news for those who are under his judgment. And we see this unfold in our third and final point. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point. The dark days ahead. And as we do, uh, read Amos chapter 8, verses 8 to 14. Verses 8 to 14. Shall not the land tremble on this account... And everyone mourn who dwells in it. And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. 
I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to south. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. In these uh, verses, the speech which began in verse 4 is continued on. And the particular focus of these verses shifts from God's promise to never forget any of Israel's deeds to what will come as a result of Israel's sin and presuming upon God's grace. This much is clear. Dark days lie ahead for the people of Israel. We see that repeated throughout verse 9. And on that day, verse 11, behold, the days are coming. Verse 13, in that day, what will happen in those days? Well, we are confronted with four unnatural disasters. An earthquake, verse 8. Darkness in the day, broad daylight, verse 9. A severe famine, verse 11. And severe dehydration, verse 13. And if we wanted to, we could probably kind of categorize these uh, four unnatural disasters under two headings. Disasters related to the creation. Disasters related to creatures. Uh, but let's take a look at those disasters related to the creation first. Notice in verse 8 that an earthquake is promised. Uh, some have thought that the language of trembling was kind of metaphorical language to explain, an effort to explain how the people of Israel might feel when the Lord began carrying out His promises of judgment. That may be, but let's not forget how the book of Amos opened up. If you flip back in your Bibles just a few pages to the beginning of the book of Amos, you'd see there in Amos chapter 1, verse 1, these words. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of, Israel's, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The terror of this promise of judgment through an earthquake is underscored by comparing it to the rise and fall of the Nile. The Nile River would, would rise and fall during a flooding season. And what Amos is saying is that's what's going to happen with the land. It's going to rise and fall and cause terrible damage. Amos was taking a familiar image to the people of Israel, the rising and falling of the Nile, and he's telling them that this is what's going to happen to the land beneath your feet. And what's more, when the Nile flooded, it destroyed everything in its path, and so it would be with the earthquake. This, of course, would lead the people of Israel to mourn. But still another disaster lies in the days ahead. On that day, or in that time, which the Lord judges the nation of Israel, there will be darkness. Solar eclipses did occur uh, back then. Two are especially documented and recorded in 784 B.C. and 763 B.C. Perhaps one of those is what Amos is talking about. But, but I don't think that we need to be too heavily concerned with uh, when and how uh, it was fulfilled. What we need to recognize most is that darkness all throughout the Scriptures is associated with God's divine judgment. And what Amos wants us to be most concerned with is the fact is that God is judging His people and they are put to grief because of it. Their joyful feasts are turned into mourning. Their songs of delight are exchanged for death dirges. 
Their party clothes are exchanged for sackcloth. Their youth and beauty is exchanged for baldness and bitterness. This is what happens in judgment. The disposition of the judged immediately changes. And every judgment that the world has ever seen pales in comparison to the final judgment to come. These are just glimmers, glimpses of what is to come on the great and last day of the Lord. Even this next judgment in verses 11 and 12, which I find personally utterly terrifying, pales in comparison to the final judgment that our world still awaits. The Lord has said that He will send an earthquake and darkness, but in verses 11 and 12 He says that He will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. To put it in the negative, the Lord would no longer send His word to His people. This is a striking judgment, especially in view of Moses' words. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses taught the people of Israel that man cannot live by bread alone. He must draw life from God's word. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we hear Moses say, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Moses said that God let the people of Israel experience physical hunger so that they would know they could not live by bread alone. There is a spiritual hunger that runs deeper, the physical hunger. They had to trust God to speak and provide life for them. The question is, if God is not sending His word to Israel, how could they live? Amos even expresses the sense of panic that sets in among the people of Israel. Uh, They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to south. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord but they shall not find it. There would come a time when God would no longer send His word, His prophets to His people. There would come a time when He would no longer speak through men like Amos. And who could blame Him? Israel hadn't listened. When God stops speaking, there is nothing to bring us near to Him. It is His word which creates and sustains His relationship to His people. The final disaster, the disaster of dehydration and thirst, is actually connected to the famine of God's Word. Young men and women will thirst for God but not find Him. All of their false idols, which verse 14 draws out and mentions, will be revealed to be futile. They cannot satisfy the hunger and thirst of the people of Israel. And so appropriately, those who uh, trust in those idols, serve those idols, will fall never to rise again. This promise of a famine and unquenchable thirst was certainly fulfilled in the time between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament when God, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, has spoken to us by His Son. That time of God's silence between the Old Testament and the New was a time of judgment upon the people of Israel. That famine was a divine infliction and thankfully we will never, never endure a famine like that again because He's spoken His word to us in His Son. The bread of life, the one in whom wells of eternal life are springing up. We can come to Him and drink and be satisfied. Never thirst again. Never hunger again.
grace, God, that we will never endure a famine like that. And friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you don't trust in Him, you don't bank your life upon Him and your only hope in Him, then this is what I want you to understand about Amos 8. Jesus, He's the answer to all of the questions raised by Amos 8. How, How will God remember our sins no more? How can it be that He will not carry these disasters out upon us and punish us for our sin. Because let's be honest, we're all sinners. Just like Israel, we've all loved ourselves more than we've loved God. Like Israel, we've we've all been preoccupied with what we want in life than what God wants from our lives. And and this is what the Bible calls sin, living our own way rather than God's way. And just as Israel was ripe for judgment, deserving of disaster, so are we. And, and we're not just deserving of a temporal disaster. Realize that. These things that Israel experienced was a temporal, a time-located disaster. No, because we have sinned against the eternal God, for our sins we deserve to be punished for all eternity in hell. So how is it that our sins against God can be remembered no more? The prophet Jeremiah said that there would come a time when he would forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. He said that in Jeremiah 31, 34. So how can God be just and do that? How is it that we can be nourished unto eternal life and filled with living water so that we never thirst again? Well, through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body true human body and soul. And because Jesus was fully man and fully God, He lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And if you you took and you looked and studied all of Jesus' life in the Scriptures, if you looked at all of His thoughts and words and deeds, amazingly you'd find that He is without sin. The only one who is ever without sin. He never loved Himself or anyone or anything above His heavenly Father. His heavenly Father was His first love. He never sinned. And yet, He gave His life up for sinners like you and me. Jesus died on the cross, taking all of our sin, guilt, and punishment upon Himself. On the cross, He bore the the dark day of God's judgment. A darkness literally descended and covered the land as He died, showing that He did in fact die under the wrath of God. He faced the disaster that our sins deserve. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him, proving to us all that that dark day is done away with, is a day of light and life in Jesus Christ. By his resurrection, God the Father declared to the world that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. They satisfied His divine justice. And now everyone who turns from their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ we made righteous, right in God's sight. It is through Jesus' life and death that God can remember our sins no more. They have been dealt with. It's not as though God kind of like winks at our sins and says, oh, yeah, it's going to be okay. No, He actually has to deal with sin because He's just. He had to do something about our sin. He had to carry out His justice. Our trespasses were counted against Jesus Christ so that they might not be counted against us. 
And now Jesus calls us all to come to him and believe that he is our hope of eternal life. Jesus satisfies our deepest longings. He satisfies our hunger for eternal life. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus told us that he is the bread of life and that whoever comes to him shall not hunger. Jesus also told us that in him we will never thirst again. He said in John chapter 7, verse 38, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So friend, if you're, you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to turn from your sins and place your faith in Him today. Jesus is the one who can quench the thirst of your weary soul. You don't have to run to and fro in this world looking for God's Word. He has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about how you can place your faith in Jesus Christ, live your life depending upon Him and His work for you, Please do come and find me at the door after the service or talk with a friend, family member that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about this morning than what it means for Jesus to bear all of the punishment for our sin and so that we can live in newness of life and have hope eternally. Well, we should conclude. Now that we've reflected on our own similarities between the people of Israel to, to the people of Israel, uh, now that we've seen some of our own wickedness and sin, and now that we've also considered God's grace most clearly displayed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ, let's return to that question that I asked at the beginning. How can I rest in God's grace and be confident in it without presuming upon it? It strikes me that the Apostle Paul actually answers this question directly in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. How do we not presume upon God's grace? By understanding the aim of it. He's gracious to us so that we might repent and believe and trust in him, no longer depending upon ourselves and living for ourselves. God's kindness and patience with us, in other words, his grace is meant to lead us to repentance. We can rest in God's grace and be confident in it without presuming upon it. When, with humble hearts, we cry, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you know our presumptuous hearts through and through. And Lord, we ask for your mercy and forgiveness and your strength to repent and walk in newness of life, trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us. We confess that, that there have been times when we have leaned upon your grace in order to lean into our sin. And forgive us, O Lord. Too often, like Israel, we have presumed upon your grace. And each day we ask that you would remind us 
of what you have done for us in Christ. Remind us that Jesus paid it all. Remind us of your kindness and lead us to repentance. That was the very purpose of Amos' preaching. To lead your people to repentance. And in repentance and faith, we know that there is joy and hope and confidence. So Lord, encourage us to remember that through Christ we have escaped your judgment and cause us to live in light of this good news. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.